Well, good morning again to you all. Today's kind of a, a milestone for our series. It's actually our 40th lesson in the Kings. I know it doesn't seem like it's been that long. Well, maybe it does to you. Um, but 40 lessons in the Kings and probably about 10 more to go till we are finished. Second uh, Kings chapter 20 today will be the uh, bulk of our time. There's a parallel passage in 2 Chronicles 32, but we'll just take a couple of verses from that one to integrate into our study. So 2 Kings chapter 20 this morning, let's pray and give our attention to what we need from the Lord in order to handle his word properly at all. Father, we're thankful that you have watched over us, you have continued to watch over us, and you will perfect what you have begun in our lives till the day of Jesus Christ. We are so grateful looking back at not only the the past week, but life itself, that it is not our righteousness that we bring to you as the basis of our hope. We are thankful that you expect us to do what is right in Christ. You expect us to pursue sanctification, holiness, the kind of holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And yet we are eternally grateful that it is our Savior that has given us righteousness and the kind of holiness that we need before you. So as we approach you this day to handle your word, we ask for your Spirit's guidance so that we will see necessity of change in our lives, but it is the kind of change that we work out this side of the cross. It is the kind of change not to drive toward your favor, but because of the favor we have in Christ, we wish to live in accordance with the Spirit of God at work in us. We want to follow his leading. We want to respond to uh, his direction on our lives and look like our Savior, Jesus Christ. So bless our time today. May it be effective towards these end. May you use your word powerfully. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This week I found some of the most terrifying words I think I have ever run across in Scripture. I don't know why I didn't notice them before, but there they were. They weren't speaking of cataclysms. They weren't addressing the end of the world. They didn't mention war, famine, pestilence, or disease. But I still found these words almost more terrifying and paralyzing than anything else. And they were in reference to the life of a good man. We've been studying Hezekiah for the last several weeks together and have found that the scriptures represent him as truly walking righteously before the Lord, so much so that last week, in several texts that we considered, Hezekiah is calling the whole nation of Judah to worship the Lord again. Then he sends couriers throughout all of Israel and calls them to worship the Lord as well. I mean, here is a man that is doing one thing right after another. So how can such terrifying words occur in the life of such an individual? Those words actually come from 2 Chronicles chapter 32, a parallel to 2 Kings, and here they are. God left him to himself in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. And as I studied this this week and spent some time in both the parallel passages and worked through the lessons that the Lord has us together, it, it kept, after I recognized this one, it just kept 
welling up to my mind and heart again and again and again, God, don't leave me to myself. God, don't leave me to myself. I already, I mean, my heart is deceitful above all things and incurably sick. But when I look at it even, I recognize how much in it is a problem, how much is inappropriate. Lord, left to myself? There's no hope. There is no chance. There is no righteousness that springs from me and me alone. As much as I might desire to do what the Lord would have me do, it is only walking in and by the Spirit that any portion of any day actually aligns with God's Word. God left Hezekiah to himself in order to test him and know all that was in his heart. And you might respond to this, well, seriously? I mean, I was expecting something a little more dramatic than that when you led up to it with the most paralyzing verse in Scripture. This isn't so bad. Again, maybe not so until we really consider what's in our hearts and understand that left to ourselves, again, there is no hope. Where will a temporary withdrawal of divine direct preservation from going our own way lead? That's what today's text shows in 2 Kings chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. And Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Now, O Lord, please remember how I've walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him, Turn back and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And Isaiah said, Bring a cake of figs, and let them take him and lay him on the boil, that he may recover. First time I went bowling... A lot of people around me were actually interested in knocking down the little white things at the end of the lane. I was pretty young at the time. I found a lot of other things more fascinating, including the ball return. How does that work? How, how is it always bringing the ball? I mean, the, the lane is, you know, this wide, and it has a gutter and gutter and things. Didn't even know what they were called at the time, right? But it has these little divots on both sides. And it doesn't matter where the ball goes, over here or over there or in the center. Somehow it captures it, and I have to wait, and I kind of have to listen. And then you hear this little clunk, 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 and then a poof, there it comes. And it spits it right back to you. That is really cool. And I'm, I'm interested in mechanical things. Do not mistake that for I am good with mechanical things. I'm interested in mechanical things. So I thought it was fascinating. But at one point, I heard a strange noise, and the ball return itself stopped running altogether. Instead of joy, we ran into frustration and disappointment because I had no ball. I couldn't throw it down there. And there were still several selections available 
to me as, I don't remember, I was seven or eight years old. And there were several others available, and I went over and tried to pick one of them up, and it was, you know, more like an 18-pound ball. I'm like, no, let's, there's nothing left. I had to have a proper return of my ball or a ball of that weight in order uh, to have any success. Well, after a while, the, one of the employees of the alley asked us to move to a different lane because the ball returned. They, they couldn't get it to work at all. You know, when a ball return fails to return, it's lost its purpose for existence. That's the only thing it's supposed to do in the entire universe is take the ball and give it back to you. And if it doesn't give it back to you, it's worthless. All the mechanics, all the other things like that are absolutely pointless. And our text today shows us something fascinating about the life of Hezekiah, that although we have so much righteousness and so much good over here, he actually faces a situation in which he stops giving back to the Lord a return that is due. And at that point, everything begins breaking down. We've read a story of intercession and intervention, and we've read a story of restoration up to this point. But the testimony of our text overall today is this, because God gives all good things. Deploy your life for his glory. I had to look around for a little while for exactly that word. I like the idea of deploying, because it's taking something in hand, taking stock of it. It is your resources. It's not somebody else's resources. It's your opportunities, not somebody else's. And deploying involves even more than just using. We we can throw ourselves into some kind of business, some kind of job, some kind of opportunity. Some of you threw yourself into lawn work yesterday. I had to deploy myself in lawn work yesterday because we have a lot of leaves up on the roof, and then we have leaves in the areas right around the house, and then we have leaves in the front yard. Well, my, my dad had already been doing some cleaning in the front yard, and I'm like, oh, wrong order. Because while there are leaves still on the roof, if you clean the front yard, you haven't gone very far. You need to deploy resources in the proper order, in the proper fashion. Get up on the roof with a backpack blower. Blow out all the gutters first. Then you get down in the flower beds and you blow all of that out into the yard. And now you can start on the yard. That's deployment. I'm not complaining, by the way. He removed tarp after tarp of leaves. So it was incredible incredibly helpful that I did not have to do it all. But you know what I mean? The difference between using something and actually deploying it for the glory of God. And we do that deploying best when we start recognizing that everything that God entrusts to us, everything that is good and valuable of life, he is the author of. So in the first seven verses, recognize God gives life itself. Of course, that's ordinary. We recognize that. Yeah, we recognize it, but we forget it. I don't live by any other means. Okay, I'm intrapersonal, so I like considering oddities that other people don't like considering. But I was sitting there thinking about my existence about two or three weeks ago and thought, you know, I didn't need to exist. Why me? Because God chose to cause me to exist. 
and the distinctive weaknesses and distinctive strengths and the distinctive uh, intellectual and physical and non-physical capacities that I have. God chose to frame a creature that looks like me and that is me. Why me? Because God chose. And there's nothing in the universe that is otherwise directly causative, ultimately, of me. And we can understand biology and say how that all works together. And yes, children are going to be born. Yeah, but why not some other child? And you've done this. You've looked at your own children or the children running around us in the church. And within the same family, they're so radically different from each other. So then you start thinking about your own life and you go, there didn't have to be a me. God could have skipped me, as it were, and I'm third of four in my family. And he could have gone, you know, Katie and then Trisha and Matthew, and there was no Brian ever. God gives life itself. And doesn't our text show us that? Hezekiah would reign a total of 29 years, which means that when our text takes place, He's only reigned 14 of those years. He's about to get 15 more. Little under half of his reign has elapsed when this incident occurred. And at this stage of his life, Hezekiah makes no direct appeal for the preservation of his life. Um, and, And let me do a quick aside here, because we're all trying to learn good Bible interpretation together, right? So as we read in some of the commentators and some of the messages that have been preached on this passage in the past, people will say things like, well, Hezekiah made a mistake here. He shouldn't have prayed for the additional years of his life because he prayed. Look, it was all downhill after that. I said, really? Where in Scripture does it say, don't take the big issues of life to God? And even here, Wednesday night, when we have people who are hurting... And people who are suffering from things that you say, this could be the end if God does not allow proper medical interventions and if God's hand is not on those medical interventions to bring about a different end, this could be the end of life. Oh no, we can't pray for those things. And some of the commentators acted as if this is a bad thing that Hezekiah prayed. But if you'll pay attention closely to the text, did Hezekiah pray for 15 years of life? Did he pray for any more life directly? No. What did he pray? You're going to have to look at the text and tell me, because I'll wait. What did he pray? Yell it out. We need to hear your voices. Remember. Lord, remember, and yet, yet again. So this is two weeks in a row where Pastor and I have a 100% batting average, not knowing what the other person was going to present. Do you remember, do you remember just a few minutes ago when he called us, do this in remembrance, and the point that he was making that remembrance for us a lot of times really is a calling to mind, although it's more than just that, it's to act on it. But a theology of of divine remembrance is important because when God remembers, not that he ever forgets anything, ever. He never loses track of a detail, past, present, or even future. But that he specifically brings it to his divine direct attention 
so that he can extend his power for good or for calamity, if, if we pertain, are pertaining to judgment, for the good of his people and for the accomplishment of his purposes. God appoints the length of our days, and Hezekiah is asking for him to remember. Such as in Genesis 8.1, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. Had God forgotten? Had he lost track of the fact that there was a boat floating around on the surface of the waters and all other, all landforms anywhere on earth were completely covered by many cubits of water? Had he forgotten? No, he hadn't forgotten it. But look, it's God remembered and God made a wind to blow on the earth. God recalls the situation to his mind in an active way so that he will do something about it. When God remembered Rachel, he listened to her and opened her womb. Again, he hadn't forgotten Rachel. He saw the difficulty. He saw her anxiety and her frustration. He saw the fact that her sister and her handmaid and her sister's handmaid were all having children, and Rachel did not. But when God remembered, he did something for her. Exodus 2.24, God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Like, wait, wait, wait. Wouldn't that be Genesis? Why are you talking about Exodus? God remembering a covenant over there causes him to do what in Exodus? Call out a deliverer for his people. Set in motion the events that are going to lead to the ten plagues and the destruction of the firstborn of Egypt. Ultimately, the complete drowning of the Egyptian army in the Red Sea and the people of God going through on dry land in a moment that they will look back to, not just for the rest of their lives and their children's and their grandchildren's and their great-grandchildren's, but all the way up to including the present and for the rest of time. Israel will look back to this moment. Why? God remembered. And when he remembers, a chill. When he remembers, he will move, and he will move in ways that save his people, in ways that drown and destroy the wicked. Oh, well, that's an Old Testament phenomenon. All of this is past. God used to remember. God used to. Acts 10.31 Cornelius, you may be a Gentile, you may be a Roman soldier, you may be even involved in some vague way in oppressing my people, not not because he himself is cruel or violent or mean, but just because Roman authority has now been extended over Israel, and Cornelius is part of that authority in that day, but Cornelius has been praying He doesn't even know Israel's God yet fully. Your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. And what is that going to do? He talks to Cornelius first. Cornelius, because I have remembered you, you need to do this. Send some emissaries all the way down well into Israel. Go to a particular place. Inquire at the house of a guy in Joppa and Find a guy named Peter. Bring him to you. And Cornelius sends him away. 
And in the meantime, he starts gathering all his relatives, friends, family, people around him. So that by the time Peter shows up, we don't know exactly, I think it passage probably tells you how many days later, but several days later, Peter shows up and a huge assembly is ready to hear the word of the Lord and trust Jesus Christ as Savior. Why? Because God remembered. It set in motion a profound series of events that brought about um, astonishing events that bring a vision to Peter and bring a complete reversal of Peter's expectation of traditions. No, I can't eat these things, and I can't associate with Gentiles either. But I tell you three times, kill and eat, and if I told you to do it, stop letting your tradition get in the way. And by the time the emissaries for Cornelius arrive, Peter's sitting there all confused and thinking, but going, something's going on that God wants me to do, and I don't grasp it yet, and he's ready to go. So this is what the Lord is already unfolding for us. Hezekiah prays, remember, remember a walk of faithfulness. Remember my whole heart. Remember the good that I have done. Lord, remember. Well, if God remembers what's going to happen, he provides an escape from death. Verses 4 through 7. I I love this. You go, why would God even do this to Hezekiah? I mean, just, just leave him there. He's on his deathbed. He prays. It's whatever. No, he sends the prophet in the first place. You're going to die. You're not going to recover. More earnest prayer on the basis of that statement. Fascinating to me. Uh, there's a little exploration here at exactly that nexus point with the revealed will of God. When is the revealed will of God reversible by God, and when is it not? Well, if it is a covenant, it's irreversible. Why? Because that's more than just a statement of divine general intent. You know what I mean, the difference? Your your kids say, hey, Dad, Dad, oh, Dad, can we go out to eat? Can we go to, whatever, Chick-fil-A? No, sorry, it's Sunday. You can't go to Chick-fil-A. Can we go out to eat? And you say, well, yeah, sure, that sounds good. And then you get a flat tire on the way home, and the answer becomes... No, we can't because we're sitting here and dealing with this instead. So we know that there's a difference between just a statement of intent and an absolute promise and or a covenant that you make. And so it is even in the scriptures. And God leads us to believe this because in Ezekiel and Jeremiah both, these prophets tell the people, if God tells the people by the mouth of one of his prophets, basically, you're doomed. And you listen to that pronouncement of judgment and you repent. Then I will relent of the calamity that I said I was bringing against you and instead there will be blessing. But if a people listens to my divine declaration, good job, guys, you're doing really well, I'm going to bless you. And you go, really? We're going to be blessed? So that means we can do whatever we want. And you turn away from your sin? then I will repent of the blessing that I said I would do to you and I will bring all the calamity and judgment that I give to the wicked and bring it against you instead. So again, a a statement of divine intent is not always the same thing as a promise, but God has revealed his will to Hezekiah and Hezekiah goes, given that will, I better pray really hard because once God has decreed something, he's the only one that can reverse it. I'm like, I'm not sure I would have had as much faith as he had in that situation. 
you know, a little streak of fatalism, you know, running through me. And I'm like, God declared it, it's over. And Hezekiah says, God declared it, time to pray. Time to pray really hard. God, remember. Well, to the Lord belong these escapes from death. And Isaiah turns around in the middle courtyard and he's like, seriously, I got to go back and tell him something. Yeah, tell him something different. I'm going to extend his life by 15 years. Our God is a God of salvation. And to God, the Lord belong deliverances from death. Take that seriously. Real deliverances from death. Does God do that? I think I've used this illustration before, but um, shortly after I began driving, uh, I was almost in a wreck that could have been fatal. You know how those, all those string together, but I look at that as a divine deliverance. We were pulling down onto East North Street, a place near our house, where you cannot see onto East North Street at all because a, a, a brick wall blocks your line of sight completely, and it's right here beside you on the road. But there's a traffic light. So we were duly waiting as uh, patient teenagers at the traffic light for it to turn, change green. And right when it changed green, an old man who was toddling down the road stepped in front of my car. And again, I'm sitting here as a patient teenager, being like, get out of the way, the light's going to go red and I'm going to be stuck here because I'll have to back up the steep hill and come back down to trip the light again. And he's just, he's just doing his little... <laughs> Seriously? You couldn't have waited for like 30 more seconds. No, he's, he's right in the middle of my front bumper and a car goes through the light at about 60 on East North Street. There is no 60 speed limit anywhere on East North Street. It's 40 at that location and he blew through the light. And all of a sudden I realized to God belong escapes from death. He was coming from the driver's side. He would have broadsided me right at the driver's side door, given the length of time. Can't promise that I would have been dead, but there's a reasonable possibility. And you all know that there are instances of life that are like that. It may be while you were driving. It may be with a, a medication reaction. It could be with a sickness that you faced. It could innumerable things in life, but to our God belong escapes from death. And all the way along, we know that it is appointed unto man once to die. But all the way along the course of life, there are instances that could bring us to that point. And God is saying, no, 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 until my day comes and I'm ready to call my servant into my presence. To the Lord belong escapes from death. And even there, we're going to be in God's presence, but we still have escaped death because we have everlasting life. And the passing from this death unto life has already occurred in the way in which it is most important. The people of God need not fear the temporary, very temporary and reversible physical death that we will experience one day. 2 Kings 28, And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, What shall be the sign that the Lord will heal me, and that I shall go up to the house of the Lord on the third day? And Isaiah said, this shall be the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do the thing that he has promised. Shall the shadow go forward ten steps or back ten steps? And Hezekiah answered, well, it's an easy thing for the shadow to lengthen ten steps. 
Rather, let the shadow go back 10 steps. And Isaiah the prophet called to the Lord, and he brought the shadow back 10 steps by which it had gone down on the steps of Ahaz. Now, coincidentally, this is the weekend of daylight savings time. (laughs) Is that what's going on here? So we just kind of wave our wand over it, and we change the hours of the day. Uh, No, a shadow going down and going back is not a legal fiction written into law by the United States Congress. We'll just play with uh, what we designate the time of day. For the shadow to go down or to go back means time actually has to advance, and the sun has to go back and forward in the sky. Uh, We have a few of these instances in the Old Testament, of course, in Uh, a day in which Joshua was fighting and needed to destroy the enemies of God, and God lengthened the day. He'd never before listened to a man like that, and it would never do so again in that we literally, as it were, (laughs) time stopped for 24 hours. But here, it did go down. We don't know whether 10 steps is 10 hours, but somehow the sun reversed in the sky and you say, well, scientifically, that's not possible. If you did that, then, you know, what, what would that do to the rest of the planet? You just said, screech, bring it to a stop and, and tip it backwards 10 hours or 10 whatever. And everything, you know, the oceans would all slosh to one side and you'd have earthquake, the earth would tear itself apart because of the forces that that would generate and so on. It doesn't matter. God's in control of all that. You know, he's, he did speak the universe into existence after all. I think he can do this. And you say, well, I think it's a fiction. I think it, or, or just he made some kind of appearance take place. Ah, we're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. Because we know something supernatural has happened. So let's explore this together. God communicates his perfect promises in verses 8 and 9. Isaiah gives a guarantee While we marvel at the specificity of the sign and the supernatural quality that it took. Oh, I want to see something like that. Lord, why don't you do something like that in our time? We lose track of the fact that the communication of God to man was the point at which the miracle, as it were, is affected. Once God has said it like this, I will give you a sign and I will bring my word to pass. I will bring my word to pass. So when God has predicted the outcome of this world, is there a little bit of hope in that, perhaps? Just, just perhaps. I came in from being out, outdoors most of yesterday afternoon to see uh, the events of yesterday that had unfolded in the nation's capital. And once again, I turn to the Lord and I go, How long? <laughs> How long? And then I go back to the scriptures and I find out, not going to tell you how long, but I will tell you the outcome. Don't worry. Don't worry. Wickedness will be brought to an end. This earth is going to continue as long as I ordain. It may be hundreds of additional years. It may be thousands. But when I bring it to an end, everything that I have said, I will do. God communicates personal support to his people through his perfect promises. Why don't you take his word that way exactly? He's told us what we need to expect out of life. And when I'm fearful, I, I, I can't solve my fear. The reasons for my fear are very real. And I go to the scriptures and I start reading about not just 
the times where God resolved it in space and time for his people, but even the hope of eternal life, and somehow the fears start melting. Why? Because when God communicates his perfect promises to us, it gives us his personal support, a testimony that he is with his people, and he controls the universe itself. Now, we know for a fact that something supernatural happened here, because if we flip over to 2 Chronicles 32:31, we find, in the matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon, who had been sent to him to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land. What input are we giving, or are getting, I should say? The nations around knew something had happened. And the scriptures do not tell us how widespread it was. Was this just the land of Judah? Was it the whole land of Israel, Canaan? Was it the whole Middle East? Was it the entire earth? We don't know, but people took notice. And so envoys from Babylon come over, and they're kind of like, just checking out your uh, connection with God, because we may need to draw on that connection in our future, especially given what Babylon was intending to do to Assyria or hoping it could do with Assyria in the future. That alliance, boy, that would be powerful. We've heard that the Judeans have a super weapon. We've heard that the Judeans have a deity that can change time itself. That's why the envoys of Babylon came to him, ultimately. God controls the universe itself. The reason, then, that we have both the right and the ability to deploy our lives for the glory of God is that God is in control. If God's not in control, then my deploying my life for him could be useless, could be incredibly wasteful. Every once in a while, we'll get a young person coming to see us and talk to us and say, I really believe the Lord's called me to ministry, but my parents say that's throwing my life away. I say, throwing your life away to do what God's called you to do. I said, now we do need respect and honor. We have to work very carefully within the confines of what God does and does not allow in his word. So while you respect, you still follow the Lord, and the scriptures tell us about the nature of following him in the New Testament specifically, that some will have to give up houses and lands and father and mother and sisters and brothers for the sake of the gospel. I said, but make sure you're actually called to that before you follow this course of action. But a waste of life? How can you construe it as a waste of life when God has communicated personal support? The reason we can deploy our lives for for him, for his glory and for eternity, is precisely because we know that God has given us a call. In the campaign leading up to the 1988 election to the presidency of the United States, George H.W. Bush was known for a particular slogan. Do you remember the slogan? Read my lips. No new taxes. Like, yes! That's exactly what I want to hear. And when he was in, was he successful? No, because Democrats controlled both houses of Congress. Somebody can have the best of intentions and still not be able to achieve it if they don't have ultimate power. And I'm not voting for a human to have ultimate power. I don't want a tyranny, okay? 
I understand he was making a, a promise or an, you know, that he was, shouldn't really have made because he didn't have the power to affect it. But we have a God that has a power to affect. So when he calls you to deploy your life for him, he's not backing that with shallowness, pointlessness, emptiness, and even if it is a short deployment before he calls his children into his presence, it is still worth something. Why? Because he will fulfill his promises and accomplish his purpose. Verses 12 through 21 tell us at that time, Merodach Baladan, king of Baladan, king of Babylon, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard that Hezekiah had been sick. Oh, seriously? Oh, good old nice Baladan, king of Babylon. I bet he was concerned about Hezekiah's health. No, he'd heard that he'd been sick, but he heard that he had been rescued from his sickness. And again, we get that input from Second Chronicles. So Hezekiah welcomed them, and he showed them all his treasure house, the silver and the gold, the spices, the spices. Don't you love that one? Now, granted, spices were worth more in the ancient world than they are today because they were hard to come by. But can you imagine? Hey, guys, come over to my house. Dan, you were just over at my house. Did, did we take you inside and show you the spice rack? Not just ba- basil, but cumin, too. Huh? Huh? Cumin, thyme, rosemary, mm, bay leaves. I got bay leaves. Pepper. And, he, and Dan, he said, wow. Show me more. Yeah, well, over here, the bullion cubes. Right? This doesn't make any sense to us. Well, again, put, put it in the context of its day. Spices were incredibly valuable. They had to come from places like India and so on and so forth. But still, they are, they're just spices. And then we go on to oil, the precious oil. Well, that would be olive oil, and that's not uncommon. So, again... Now, and here is my little, you know, flavored oil. Do you, do you use those things like the, and they put stuff in the oil and pour, okay, my wife doesn't, knows all that, so whatever. But oils, this is crazy stuff. His armory, we might have had a little more fun with that, right, Dan? Okay, the armory and all that was in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house. Here's my sock drawer. Here's, or in all of his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? And from where did they come to you? And Hezekiah said, Oh, they've come from a far country, from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, They've seen all that's in my house. There's nothing in my storehouses. I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Some of your own sons 
who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and there shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, Why not? If there will be peace and security in my days. The rest of the deeds of Hezekiah and all his might, and how he made the pool and the conduit that brought water into the city, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Hezekiah slept with his fathers, and Manasseh his son reigned in his place. God gives us all of our material resources, so deploy your life for his glory. We find exactly at this point that Hezekiah, according to 2 Chronicles 32, 25, did not make a return. According to the benefit that God had done to him, he did not make a return. God gave him as an asset in his, almost as it were, his bank account, 15 years of life. And instead of saying, 15 years, 15 years, I wonder what I can do as king of Judah in 15 years. Okay, well, God has called me to continue to fortify the land. That's a king's responsibility, so that's a, that's a good thing. Let's put that on my bucket list, more fortifications. Okay, what else can I do in 15 years? Well, we already had a really fantastic start we did bring some from the land of Manasseh and Ephraim up in the north down to worship with us last year. Bigger and better. Next year, let's send twice as many couriers up to the northern kingdom. Let's make this thing, let's do it up right. Let's make sure we hold it in the first month and don't have to hold it in the second month. Let's get this all together. The people of God need to worship the Lord. Well, what is it going to take to do that? Hmm. I need to keep training the priests. I need more scribes, people who are really well informed in the law and who can train the people so that the people want to come back to the Lord. There's so many things he could have done. Or we can take 15 years in hand and go, 15 years, 15 years. Boy, time's a ticking. I'd really like to see the Taj Mahal, and it would be really fun to, and I, I, I've never been to the anywhere below, like Tampa and further south in Florida. I hear there's some amazing beaches further south. That's on the bucket list. I went to the Caribbean once, but it was just, it was merely to teach on biblical hermeneutics. And I didn't really, I didn't get to snorkel. I didn't get to, that should go on the bucket list as well. Hezekiah apparently does not think of the Lord really at all after the Lord gives this into his hands. And I don't mean, when I say at all, we, we don't have him tossing the Lord completely overboard and he goes and worships idols. It's just that I have 15 years left. I'm going to spend it as I see fit. He does not make a return according to the benefit done to him, for his heart was proud. God gives us all material resources to so deploy your life for his glory. God's hand, not ours, brings us prosperity. And it was precisely at this point, according to Second Chronicles, just after he had been healed, that God left him to himself to see what was in his heart. And left to himself, Hezekiah focused on himself. Left to himself, he did not make a return. Left to himself, he was lifted up in pride. Left to himself, he focused on himself. The emissaries arrive from Babylon. He can't stop that. 
They showed up because they'd heard of all the glorious things that he'd done, but he could at least glorify God and point foreigners to God. And instead, he points foreigners to himself. He's more concerned with his spice rack, as we've noted, than he is concerned with their salvation. He's more concerned with his armory than he is with a reliance on God and the display of the power and wonder and glory of a God that Babylon desperately needed to hear, hear of. So the scriptures tell us and draw our attention to this at this point to focus on God. His hand, not ours, brings our prosperity. His plan, his plan, not ours, secures our future. Judgment by Babylon was coming. We still have to go through Manasseh, Ammon, Josiah, and a quick succession of kings, Jehoahaz, Eliakim, and Jehoiachin. So those are the next few weeks. Before we get to the end in Zedekiah, but God has already declared the, the future. His plan secures what is going to happen. His character, not ours, defines what is good. It's very sad that Hezekiah reacted as he did. And again, here, commentators are split. Most of them are okay with what Hezekiah said. And a colleague of mine went back and forth this week on, was Hezekiah's statement okay or was it bad? When he's like, ah, oh, good. Whew. At least it's not in my day. And a lot of commentators will look, no, we really think that this is his saying, okay, the Lord's will be done, but I am glad that the Lord is at least doing something good in my day. I'm going, well, given the emphasis on pride immediately before the statement, I wonder if it really was benign or whether he essentially washes his hands of future generations and says, hey, at least I've got it good. America can go down the drain for my kids, but as long as I can cross the finish line with plenty in the bank account, so be it. You're going, well, that would be pretty calloused. At very least, we need to let God's character, not ours, define what is good. In high school, I was on a particularly tiring and grueling speech and debate tournament in which my event rounds ran way over. When your rounds run over and they identify lunch is from 12.30 to 1.30, but your rounds run way over, it means lunch is now from 1.25 to 1.30. And you have to be back in the room because you could be first speaking in the next round where you were last in the round before. So, like, mm-hmm. so I happened to pass by a, um, a vending machine there at the public high school where we were speaking. And I put my money in and nothing, <laughs> right? If you've seen that skit, nothing. And uh, there at a public high school, uh, the vending machine was behind bars. So there was nothing I could do to shake the item loose. How do you feel when you pay for something and you don't get a return? A little bit frustrated, a little anxious, depleted resources. Not like I could fill out a little slip at a public high school and get money mailed to me. They expected that to be used for their own students. Once the package snagged, all my hope and promise of getting that return for my money evaporated, and I was very frustrated to say the least then imagine a God who has given you life and expects a return for that life, who's given you the mind, the body, the resources, the opportunities. He has given them to you exactly the unique combination that he's given to you. And you say, well, I don't have so... It doesn't, you don't need so-and-sos. 
He gave you exactly the set of resources and even personality uh, strengths and weaknesses to glorify him in ways that no one else can. And instead we go, if I don't have what so-and-so else, somebody else has, then I can't do anything. Not giving God a return is, not a, da- is a very dangerous thing. God is not frustrated by human conduct like, like we are. But that doesn't mean that his justice is diminished or his right to glory is, is not decreased by our sin. When we do not deploy our lives for his glory, we're seizing his good gifts without gratitude, ripping them from our, his hands and storming off to our own rooms to enjoy his good gifts as if he gave them for us alone. Because God is the author of everything that is good, deploy your life for his glory this week. Father, we're thankful for the testimony of Hezekiah's life. We may not be given a new lease on life at the very point of death, but you have given us a lease on life. May we invest it for the sake of your kingdom, because of the goodness of your name, and because you love us. It's for Christ's sake we pray. Amen.